0: Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn and I'm a WCT certified educator and in this podcast I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties and also interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. just to introduce you garth hudgen and you've started a import company cage imports and um, can you just tell me about yourself and your uh, love of champagne
1: yeah so i mean i came to the champagne world the way that most people do is through restaurants right the wine world in, in general um i started off in sacramento when i was young i actually Lied on an application at applebee's and told them i had restaurant experience when i didn't um and got in there in my early 20s and then worked my way up um sort of not on purpose just like this very circuitous route through uh wine bars and restaurants in sacramento i ended up in yonfield at bouchon um, thomas keller's one michelin star restaurant i was the head sommelier there for about two years uh and i left and i went and worked for Thomas at a couple other restaurants. I was the sommelier at the French Laundry for three and a half years and then went to Per Se for a year um, where we, you know, we poured lots of great champagnes by the glass and got to do lots of really fun things. Um, You know, back in the day, I said back in the day, I'm not that old, but back in the day, there weren't uh, so many people clamoring to get all of these champagnes. I remember at one point we ordered uh, Ily uh, Vin de Vrigny and then we reordered another six pack and the, the distributor called us and said, hey, you guys are the only ones that have actually ever reordered this wine. Can you, would you like some more? And we said, sure. And, and luckily we were able to pour it by the glass. And so we were doing really fun things with champagne, um, mostly because we had great access to a lot of things and people weren't really as into it as they are now. Now Ely is really hard to get. Um, but back in the day, it was, it was a little bit easier to get. And so, you know, I sort of started falling in love with champagne there. And, and we poured Krug by the glass for the entire day, entirety of the time that I was there at the French Laundry. When I left restaurants, uh, I got hired by Krug Champagne. Um, and I worked for five years as the national ambassador. And I spent five years. I covered 44 states. And I traveled 300, 320 days a year um, just talking about and drinking champagne. Um, and part of that travel took me back to the Champagne region um, once or twice a year. Um, and sure, I got to do a bunch of fun stuff at, at Maison Krug, but I also got to go explore the city and make friends and drink at wine bars and and find all really cool things on lists that just weren't coming to the United States. And I remember sitting in Low Wine Bar in Rons um, one night drinking this really beautiful champagne producer that I'd never heard of before. And I spent most of my time Googling, where the heck do I find this in the United States? And I couldn't, it didn't exist. It wasn't something that was in the United States. And so that just sort of filtered into the back of my mind. And when I left Krug after five years, I, uh, it just never really left me. It was like, there's these great champagnes that exist in France that just aren't in the United States. And so Cage was born out of that. Cage was born out of my desire to... Be able to share some of these fun champagnes that i found and some of these friends that i made and and really that's it that's cage in a nut in a nutshell now is is you know our desire to find and share really cool fun champagnes that should be on everyone's wine list and in everyone's glass
0: yeah i was in france recently and just going into wine shops it's so much fun just to see wines that aren't available Outside the country, and just um, kind of why aren't these available? Because they're so good. Just exploring all the lo- the local culture, and I tasted a lot of good champagne, even though I wasn't in Champagne and wines that aren't available here. So there's still a lot to explore and uncover in Champagne. Tell me about some of the producers that you're really excited about uh, bringing in. So I mean, to your point, there there are so many more champagnes that are
1: still out there that that haven't been discovered, and not just champagnes. All Over the world i think there's there's some really wonderful things that are happening um and there's some some books that have been written recently sort of about the transformation of of the land of the wine wine landscape um around the world um that makes it really interesting and exciting there's a lot of fun things that are happening um and i'm happy to be a part of it and and i think the reason for you know still to this day you go to like you said you were in france a couple of weeks ago and there's a bunch of things that aren't here is it's not a simple process to to import wine or champagne and it's definitely not cheap. Um, and it's not something that, um, you know, is for the faint of heart and I'm not giving myself extra credit. I'm just simply saying that it's, you know, maybe (laughs) I'm too dumb to know the difference. Right. But it's one of those things where I think you really do, um, you know, take a lot of ownership, um, with these brands because, you know, your question what am i excited about is is i'm excited about all of our producers we're up to 15 now um that are in the united states in different markets and you really do i mean like i said you spend a little bit of money you spend a lot of time thinking about talking about building presentations for tasting with with um you know, potential customers, these champagnes, and they really do become a part of your life. And so the champagnes that I have in market are really a big part of my life, a big th- part of my thought process, a big part of what I do every day. And they feel like family um, so much so that last time I was in champagne, I was at one of my producers and, and, and it was there early in the day. And they sent me away at the end of the day with a, with a little croissant and a Ziploc baggie in case I got hungry, you know, like a, like a, a, like sending your kid off to school sort of thing. So some of the producers that I'm excited about, there's some that are in the market. I have a producer called Cali Lemaire based in Damry. Um They are doing really, really amazing things. They have this Maison-like quality um, of precision and depth and focus in their champagnes, but they're making 55,000 bottles a year. They're tiny uh, in comparison. They're just, they're just hitting on all cylinders. The wines are absolutely fantastic um we have a producer named guimea they're from the small Gronkru crew village called louvois um and they're just producing really really fantastic champagnes female winemaker sophie and her husband frank are doing really cool things and last time i was there you know we were just having discussions They're again they're making 50 55,000 bottles a year and you know they're having discussions on a daily basis sophie's a fifth generation winemaker and she's asking me and other people in the in their sort of orbit what do you think about this cuvee what do you think about this is like is this good should we what should we do this year what should we do next year i mean the the, the level of innovation that's happening in champagne right now is is really really mind-blowing um and then you know there's producers that i'm that i'm working with there's one uh gentleman who who i found last time i was in champagne in april um and we were at a tasting and he was at a table just by himself it was him and one bottle of wine and it had no label it had no name it was hundred percent Pinot Noir from a vineyard that his grandma gave him. Um, and I tasted it and it was mind blowing. Um, and so I went back the next day cause it was a two day tasting and I just reintroduced myself and had a conversation. I'm like, listen, I really want to work with you. I want to bring these into the United States. He said, well, I've got maybe a thousand bottles. I said, great. I'll take whatever you can give me hundred, 120 call it a day. It doesn't matter. So we shook hands in, in probably a year or two, He'll have some wines and there'll be a label and there'll be a name and i don't know what it's going to be called but it's exciting that's the sort of level of what's happening in champagne right now i think that that there are new producers and new wines and new vineyards that had for generations just been sold to a co-op or to a big house that now the next generation is coming around and and really starting to do some new and interesting things and so for anyone who reads books or listens to podcasts or whatever it is and thinks they know everything there is to know about the producers that are coming out of champagne or know the names of all of the producers that are important in champagne. I mean, I've got news for you. I don't even know them. And I'm, I spend all of my days thinking about talking about doing champagne things. So um, that's, what's exciting for me is that I can have been, I've been doing champagne exclusively for darn near a decade and I'm still learning stuff every single day. It's really, really cool.
0: And that's exciting as well, because you always want to be learning something new. And that's the really interesting thing about the history of Champagne, is that it's a constant history of innovation and change. It's not just a settled product that maybe people think was always the same. You know, Levels of dryness have changed, the winemaking methods have changed, disgorgement, has changed. And so it's exciting that it's continuing to change so you mentioned that there's lots of innovation can you be um specific about what innovation is really interesting in champagne right now
1: i think the Champenois have always been tinkerers they were ever i've never been to a champagne cellar where someone hasn't said check out this cool thing i'm trying or we did this or look at this interesting thing or we've got this experimental vineyard that we're trying things out there's always something going on um they haven't always been released. They haven't, there hasn't always been a market for things like that. And I think now there is a little bit more of a market. I think people understand champagne and are willing to take some more chances with champagne. And so you're seeing some of the lesser varietals being bottled um, 100% and you're seeing um, all sorts of different things. But I think what's really happening right now and the, the biggest change in champagne in the last decade is climate change, global global warming, call it what you would but we've seen the temperatures changing. And that's allowed for a lot of things. I mean, Champagne being at the 49 and a half parallels about as far north as you can go in Europe and ripen grapes. Ripening has been one of the big issues always. Um, And now we're seeing more vineyards, like Louvois, like I mentioned, they're directly next to Boozy. Um, Bouzy is bigger. Bouzy is more famous. They're both Grand Cru. They're both Pinot Noir based. The difference is, is that Louvois has a little bit of a what tilt to it, whereas Bouzy and Albinet, for that example, are both full sit- south facing, um, and that has given them more ripeness, more power, more prestige. Uh, whereas Louvois sort of fallen by the wayside. Now they're making champagnes that are equivalent to or better than. Um, producers in Bouzy and Ambenay. And so you're seeing sort of this level of ripeness that's that's available in the grapes, both phenolic um, and, and actual like ripeness that you're getting in the grapes are, are are far superior to what you got a decade ago. Um, You're seeing um, harvest used to be even within one generation, harvest used to be a hundred days from flower to harvest. And now it's average 87 days. Um, and so you're seeing this really dramatic change in the mindset and the way that people are farming and the way that people are thinking about champagne and you're seeing cool things. I mean, KOTU Champenois is a thing that now a decade ago, I mean, there was a few producers. I remember buying like a Paul Barra, Côte KOTU Champanois in a half bottle with a crown cap and drinking it on the train and it was 12 euro 50 and it was the most delicious thing ever. Um, but it was, I bought it as a curiosity. I was like, oh, you never see these. And now every single champagne producer you go see has a barrel of Coteau Champenois that they're trying to, um, you know, they're experimenting with maybe it's this vineyard, maybe they're doing Blanc, maybe they're doing or whatever it is, but everybody's making a still red or white wine out of champagne. Um, which, you know, you mentioned history, you go back in history and, and that's what champagne was originally. It was a still wine. Um, and, they were competing with Burgundy for the best wines of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And and they were trying to do that. And, you know, for all of the reasons, and I don't need to go into the whole history of champagne, but for all of the reasons that we all know, you know, champagne turned into a bubbly wine as opposed to Burgundy. And so now we're, we're sort of looking at that again. And I think it's, it's interesting to see that coming full circle and, and that we're making red and white wines and i'm sure someday someone's going to do a rose i haven't seen it yet but i'm sure it's going to happen um you know we're seeing still wines again in, in champagne in bigger numbers um, and i think the quality's going up and the reason that it wasn't for years and years and years is because the quality just wasn't there
0: going back to sparkling wine but also connected to still wine the idea of terroir and champagne has never been like for. Uh, foremost in talking about champagne but it's something that's clearly becoming much more important.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think terroir in champagne is a word that they haven't we used and I think that was because the big maisons have for many years not really focused on that. And and that's changed. I mean, you know, you look at things like Claude Glaust or or Claude de Menil or Claude Amenay or um, you know, Clos Saint Hilaire from Beaune There's there's all of these single terroir wines that been around for a decent amount of time um you know back into the 60s and 70s and so there's been a little bit of focus on terroir but that was always thought of as the exception is that those are the one or two vineyards that are great and the rest need to be blended and i think now we're starting to see people and it's really just uh, i think it's really just because of the rise of grower champagne in the last 25 years is that when you're a grower you really only have one terroir. We work with a few producers that only have grapes from one village. Um, And when that's the case, or the gentleman I was mentioning before with his Pinot Noir is a couple hectares that he's got from his grandma. um, You've got one terroir. That's all you can do. You can't blend from different villages and different grapes and all of these different things. And so a lot of it was born out of necessity. Um, And I think that the consumers have spoken and found that some of these single vineyard and single terroir wines are really, really interesting and really good. And it gives depth to Champagne. Um, I think Champagne had suffered in the past from sort of being monolithic. It was, here is what vintage 2006 tastes like. Here's what Blanc de Blanc tastes like. Here's what Rosé tastes like because there weren't as many voices speaking about those, not voices like me, voices like the winemakers, and so when you only had a couple big houses making wines and the growers weren't really doing anything other than selling their grapes, you didn't have as much um, sort of as many different flavors to taste and so now with all of these growers and there's more every day um, you're really starting to see the differences and I and, and see that champagne is, you know, you can do a Blanc de Blanc tasting or a rosé comparative tasting or a vintage comparative tasting. And I think the variety from one to the other is, is growing and changing uh, in a really fun and interesting way.
0: At the same time, Champagne has always had its different regions semi-classified. So there has been awareness in the Grand Cru villages and the Premier Cru villages. There has been awareness of place. And um, there a particular sub-region of champagne which you really are excited about
1: i don't know if it's a sub-region necessarily that i'm excited about more than a grape i think um pinot Meunier or Meunier, um depending on who you talk to is is really what's exciting now and i think for a long time again and not putting any you know negative thoughts towards the big houses but you know i've heard Meunier called a filler grape i've heard it called um, lots of other really terrible names that i won't repeat um, because this is a family show. Um, you know, but it 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 was sort of just like an insurance grape. and it was Pinot Meunier's vegetative cycle is a couple weeks later and a couple weeks shorter than um, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay tends to be a touch easier. I'm not speaking as experienced, but it's a touch easier to grow. Um, and so it's been insurance, and and people aren't really excited about it. And now you're starting to see so many people that are making 100% Meunier bottlings or putting Meunier dominant in their in their blend. I was in Champagne recently with a family member who didn't really know much about Champagne, and he left, and his only thing he talks about is Meunier and how much he loves Meunier. And Meunier-dominated Champagne blends are his favorite. And um, it's funny, every time I show up with a bottle, he goes, is that Meunier? um and so it's it's fun to to be able to you know see the consumers getting a chance to learn a new grape and it's really interesting because those of us that know have you know been studying flashcards or whatever the heck it is for years and years and years we know what mounier is but i think as a general consumer it's not something that people were talking about and even you know a decade ago when i started with krug i would say the word mounier because Krug's always use mounier in their blends uh, and people would sort of look at me sideways and say, what is that grape, right? Um, and I think it's becoming a little more known now, but it's really sort of kicking to the forefront. You know, maybe someone listening in Champagne might say, we've always known that. And it's like, sure, you have, but the general consumer in the United States, uh, even the general Champagne lover in the United States is probably not all that familiar with Meunier.
0: Yeah, when I started studying wine and learning about Champagne, is the one example of a producer that took Minier seriously, but the general consensus was that it's just the fruity, fresh, youthful uh, style of wine. But definitely now, again, when I was in France, just going to wine shops, so many wines Minier based, which I bought and tasted and tried, and they were just absolutely fantastic. They just have some body and weight to them, and also they're being taken more seriously by the producer as well uh, in, the, in the winery um in terms of production of champagne obviously the production is really vital to the style of wine how do producers kind of um, approach lee's aging and the grape varieties they're working with and the the vineyards they're working with are the different uh, concepts or approaches Uh, one
1: of my favorite quotes was from alexander charton and we were talking about dosage and i he said if you ask 10 producers the right way to make dosage wines, you'll get 12 answers. And I loved that because it really encapsulates the Champenoise's sort of methodology and thought process about winemaking and vineyard management and everything. Every single person in Champagne has their way of doing it and it works for them. It works for the way they want to make their wine, the way they want to tend their vineyards. And they all think, right or wrong, that it's the best way to do it. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I've been to someone's cellar and they say, we're the only people in Champagne doing this. And I'm like, your neighbors told me the same thing yesterday, that they're the only people doing this. And so, um, I think there's a lot of, of sort of, I don't know what I'm like the point I'm trying to make, but I think that there's a lot of differentiation in Champagne and there's a lot of similarities in Champagne and, and it's hard to sort of pull those two apart sometimes when it comes to winemaking. I think what's happening right now that's really exciting is that we're just really starting to talk more about farming and there's less and less herbicides and pesticides. There's less synthetic things being sprayed into the vineyards. Um, You know, you can see the news cycle and there's certain websites and certain writers um, that I won't mention by name um, that really take joy in blasting the CIVC and blasting the Champenois and sort of saying Oh look how terrible they are to their vineyards! And yeah, you can go and see some vineyards that look like the moonscape, and it's it's really sad. But I think more and more and more, you're starting to see things in Champagne. Um, you know, biodiversity is a word that everybody's using. There's n- not just grasses, but there's there's flowers, and I've seen people planting trees in the middle of their vineyards and putting up bird boxes. And I spend less and less time in Champagne talking about vineyard like vine training and all of these things. And we spend more time grabbing handfuls of dirt and counting the different bugs that are in it. And, um, I think that's sort of, if you could say, you know, what is champagne doing right now as a whole? Um, I think everyone's spending more and more time thinking about vineyard health and sustainability and organics and biodynamics and things of that nature. That a generation ago or even a couple of decades ago just wasn't something that we discussed. And I think part of it is, I don't want to say it in a way that makes it sound like, oh, this is all brand new and it's all just happening. There's people who've been doing it. Like George Laval and Cumier is a great example. He's been doing it, you know, since, this, since he took over his family's property 20 years ago um, or so. Uh, he's been doing great farming and and really wonderful biodynamics and all of this stuff that is new to most people. You know, there are people who have been doing it for a long time. But I think the overall knowledge and overall interest in champagne by the consumers, not only in the United States, but around the world, has allowed us to deepen the conversation where it used to be the questions you got was, what's the dosage? What's the great blend? How much does it cost, and that's the questions people knew to ask about champagne and now people are asking about farming and you know all sorts of things I mean there's a producer in in champagne um every Dumez and he is um bee certified they're bee friendly wineries, and they produce honey that you can taste and the wines are great, and the people are wonderful and like you know they they have bee boxes. I was actually at one of my producers and um Clement, one of the the winemakers from Every Demest, was in the backyard of my winemaker or my producer's house. And I was like, hey, how's it going? And he's like, oh, hey, how's it going? I didn't know you knew these guys. Oh, I'm just dropping off bees in their backyard. And it's just like this crazy thing that's happening, you know, and not to say that bees are new, but we're talking about them now and we're thinking about them now because it's not just champagne is this product that we drink and it's got bubbles in it and we drink it on new years or your mom's birthday or whatever. And that's it. It's, it's a a region with people and vineyards and they're different. And it's not just, this is Blanc de Blanc Chardonnay in champagne tastes like X. That's not the case anymore. I don't even remember the question. So I maybe answered or maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) I, I love, I love talking about champagne. Um, And I generally wonder, and it's great when no one's recording it, but now that this is going to be recorded, it's sort of like, we'll go back and listen and go, he really didn't answer that question, but that's okay. There's no one here to tell us any
0: different at this point. Well, you've moved on to biodynamics, which is a very interesting topic in general, but certainly in Champagne, um, as a growing trend, as you've mentioned, but it must be difficult for farmers to um, grow biodynamically and practice biodynamically. What are the challenges in Champagne?
1: I'm not an expert on all of that, so it's it's definitely hard to to get to all of the minute challenges because they're they're immense. But I know that in Champagne, you know, we're looking at colder climate, we're looking at more rain, we're looking at all of these things. So when you're talking about organics um, in one region, and maybe you're talking about spraying in a vineyard, maybe let's call it Château de Pop it's warm and maybe you have to spray once or twice for mold or once or twice a year for something, where in Champagne you may have to spray 20 or 30 times. Um, and so just the amount of, of work in a vineyard and the amount of things that take place in biodynamics and organics are multiplied in a, in a more marginal region like Champagne. And so um, that I think is one thing. And then we look to a, a, a vintage like 2021 It rained for the entire month of July, the entire month of July, it rained. And I talked to a lot of producers, I was there during that month. And it was a lot of fun, because there was no vineyard trips, it was all just barrel tasting. And we drank a lot that that trip, that was a lot of fun. But, you know, I talked to some producers that were like, we're biodynamic, we're organic. And if we don't spray, we're going to lose hundred percent of our grapes, And a lot of people made that choice. A lot of people decided that they were like going to stick to that. But I know some producers that said, you know, we're biodynamic or we're organic and we're going through the process of being certified right now, but we're going to have to start over because we have to spray something this year to try and save from mildew or mold. And so you really do run into these issues where it's really nice and easy. And you know, the growing season, there's warm. There's a lot of sun, you know, that pr- pr- provides its own problems as well. I'm not saying it's just easy breezy everywhere, but you know, in Champagne, you have all sorts of issues. And I think the biggest issue in Champagne in this regard is biodynamics and organics, but also just in Champagne, and this has come from a lot of people I've spoken to, is that in Champagne, there's always been something. Every year, there's been something that's gone wrong. It's been hail. It's been frost. It's been a rainy growing season. It's been not enough sun. It's been whatever it is. Now, you're getting two. You're getting summer frost or with spring frost and summer hail, or you're getting, you know, two, sometimes three different things that are hitting the vineyards every year. And so you're having to sort of fight on both ends. And that's really been the big issue is that when you're trying to do all of the right things in the vineyard and mother nature's fighting you on it, um, it becomes difficult. And so you could probably spend a lot of time with someone who knows a touch more in depth, the, the challenges of farming, um, those methods but i I know that in champagne it's it's a constant struggle for all the Champenois to sort of decide what they want to do and what's going to work for their vineyards and for that specific vintage and so it's it's a difficult choice and a difficult way to farm but i've had a lot of producers who have stuck to their guns and really done some really really amazing things and um you know, I think there's there's some producers that are producing biodynamic wines in Champagne that are just earth-shatteringly good.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's fascinating that you have know, new generations coming in to Champagne and changing the farming practices, which used to be, um, as you say, with the herbicides and pesticides, and just changing to be more sustainable and long-term thinking. Um, I'd like to focus on one producer, Labrie et Fiste, because it's part of my wine club, and that's how I was introduced to you as well as to um, those wines and it's some of the best champagne i've tried recently can you just tell me about that producer as an example of what's happening in champagne
1: i mean that's that's i'm glad to hear that that's one of the best champagnes um, you've tasted in a while and it's funny i came to when i again here we go on my tangents um when i first started cage champagnes the i took a trip and I went and visited a bunch of friends and a bunch of people I knew, and some of them were already imported and some of them weren't. And I was with a friend who ha- already had an importer and we were chatting and I'd been hanging out with him for a while. And he said, Hey, you know, one of my best friends makes wine. Do you want to taste with him? I was, yeah, of course. That's that's why I'm here. Let's do it. Um, and so a lot of the producers I found, I went on Instagram and I, I was like, what are they doing? In, what are they drinking in Denmark and Sweden and Italy and, France and London and all of these places, you know, who are the people in Champagne or in those regions that are doing Champagne and doing it well? And who are they um, looking at and drinking and importing? And that's how I found Cali Lemaire there. They were one of the, the names that popped up in every market. They were just hot on fire and nobody in the United States had them. And I got super lucky and they're great. LaVe is the exact opposite. They're not on the internet. They're, they they do not have Instagram. They don't have Facebook um i think jerome told me once they set up a facebook he put one post on it and then he's never looked at it again you know so they're sort of like a little bit more off the grid and i found them through a friend and that was actually on that trip in july of 2021 and i walked in and they said you know normally we take you out into the vineyards but it's been raining for a month so how about we just taste every barrel um that we have in the in the barrel room and I said, yeah, sure, that sounds like a great time. And I was with a group of friends. There was, you know, three or four people that were with me. And I was with Jerome Lave from from Labé Fee. And the first barrel we tasted was a Chardonnay. And I remember him, you know, putting the wine thief into my glass and I took a sip. And I looked around at everybody else, thinking, A, am I being punked? Like is Ashton Kutcher gonna jump out from behind these barrels? Because this glass of Chardonnay I had tasted like the best Poulini Mont Rocher I've ever had in my life. It was just a complete, beautiful wine. But I kept my mouth shut. I said, oh, that's tasty. Moved on, moved on, moved on. After three barrels, um, without even tasting a finished champagne, I thought to myself, I said, I'm go- I am have to bring this producer in. The wines, the, the base wines from the year were just that good. And so we went through the tasting. We ended up tasting every champagne that they made and some old wines. And like I said, it was raining. So we really just kind of got after it and it was fun. And we had this really, really wonderful chat. And at the end, I just asked if I could bring them into the United States and they were super excited about it. Um, and they just had, they've been this sort of sleeper hit because as you know, I mean, there's so much of this world where it revolves around Instagram or, you know, tagging or retagging, or, you know, I went out to dinner last night and I had a champagne that wasn't mine. And I tagged it and they read uh, on on Instagram, and the, the winemaker, who's a friend, but whatever, you know, reposted it and said, Hey, thanks for, for sharing and all of this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's fun, but that's a big part of it, right? Like a lot of times, there's a lot of people I think that only drink producers of champagne that they know are cool on the internet. And so, Labe sort of sometimes doesn't get the same heat. Uh, on the internet that a lot of our other producers at Cage do. But when people taste those wines, it really knocks their socks off. I mean, the wines are really, really well-made. And the other thing I think that has come from that, um, they're two brothers. They're probably in their 30s. I don't ask people how old they are, but they're probably in their young, their early to mid-30s. They're they're third-generation winemakers, and all they care about is making wine. Like, I remember I sent an email and I asked Jerome for something a couple weeks ago. And his answer was, next time it's raining. Like, if it's not raining, you're, I'm out in the vineyards, I'm on the tractor, I'm, I'm doing things. Like, you want something that r- involves me, like, being on my computer and sending you something? Like, yeah, when it's raining, I'll do it. You know, that's, that's sort of the mindset they have. And the wines are that way. They're based in a village called Shamri, which if you visit... Champagne during um, Champagne Week, every year it's a, a big trade week where everybody in the Champagne world comes and tastes the, the base wines from the previous year. Chamry is one of the few villages that actually does an event outside. All of these other um, groups, there were 27, I think I counted this year, do something in Rons. There's a few in Epernay. Shamri um, gets together and they do something called the Shamri Circus, and they taste Coteau Champenois, and they taste the still wines from the previous year. And it's really fun. There's some great producers that are in Shamri. You know, there's a few little people from Sasi or Akoi, which are the two villages on either side um, that sneak over there, but there's some really great producers, some really famous names, some people that are really super cool and hip on the internet that are from the village and participate in that tasting. And so there's this real kind of like cool factor that's happening in Shamri so much so that, um, you know, people listening aren't going to see, but you know, I have, glasses and a beard and I sometimes look like a people accuse me of being a hipster and I'm, I'm actually the exact opposite I have a very classic palate I grew up on you know class growth Bordeaux and big house champagnes and that's sort of a, where my palate falls still is is very well made classic wines and, and La and fee is it falls that way I mean they're not subject to what's hip and cool they do make one champagne that's no sulfur, no dosage, all those things, biodynamic, all the cool hip words. But they also make a rosé that's got eight grams per liter of residual sugar. And when you say eight grams per liter, people go, oh, I don't want that. It's going to be so sweet. But if I don't tell you that and you take a sip, I mean, people go out of their mind to drink this rosé. I mean, I've had people just buying cases of it when we do like retail tastings or something because the wine's so good. And I think that's something that's interesting is that they're not going, oh, we're just going to make non-dosage wines because all our neighbors are doing it, or we're going to do this because our neighbors are doing it, or this is what we see on the internet. And so it's an interesting case study. And I haven't really done a ton of work to sort of like parse it all out. I'm not doing like, you know, university type studies, but it's interesting to see that sometimes these producers that aren't on the internet and aren't necessarily doing what their neighbors are doing or caring what's the hippest and the coolest. And they're just making wines based on the type of wines that they like to drink and the type of wines that their vineyards are giving them. And you end up with like a producer, a producer like La Bay and Fee. And I mean, now here I am pimping your wine club and pimping my producer, but like go find that wine. It's really, really cool. And it's, sort of this intersection of what's really hip in Champagne and what's always worked in Champagne. And so you get this really well-made, really beautiful Champagne that doesn't really fall into the, like the labels don't look like all the cool hip kids do, you know, with the plain white label or cream label with the black font on it or whatever, you know, they're, they've got a design and they've got a little drawing and you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful example of, what champagne can be it's it shows you that not everything's exactly the same and i just love the wines i love the brothers i love all everything about it
0: uh, me too and the, the proof is in the wines themselves you've mentioned barrels there that you were tasting from barrels to go on for of my own tangent i was in tasmania earlier this year i went to jance which is the, kind of the biggest really really good producer and they vintage wines they ferment in barrel before transferring them to stainless steel and um, they just give kind of a really richness, but maintain the freshness of the wines, which is really interesting. And then, so you've mentioned barrels in champagne. Is that a common trend or a growing trend to use barrels? Yeah, um, yes. I mean, I think
1: pre nineteen sixty, when stainless steel was in, introduced into the champagne region, everybody was using barrels or enamel steel tanks um, or you know something else, and. Then stainless steel came and everybody sort of moved that way. Same as when, um, you know, chemical fertilizers and herbicides came. Everybody sort of moved that way. And I think the trend, the pendulum has swung back. And I think a lot of people are using barrels now. And I remember tasting um, with Laurent Champ from VMR a decade ago and, and he was talking about his barrel program and it was new and exciting and things that people were not doing. And he was mentioning the few other producers that he knew of that were doing that. And now everybody's, you know, using used barrels and it's fun to say, Oh, I bought this barrel from this producer in Burgundy, or, you know, it's been aged with this or the, you know, all these different things. And, and not everyone's using new barrels. Most people aren't using new barrels because oak and champagne can be really, really, um, overwhelming. Um, and even some producers that I know in the past that used a lot more new oak have sort of dialed it back. So oak the oak flavors in Champagne is something that's not very predominant in a lot of producers. Um, I know that there was a, an article just written in Decanter Magazine um, by a friend who sort of talked about oak and oak influence in Champagne. And it was really interesting to see which producers are still using what percentages. But Almost all producers um, that I visit are using some sort of oak in in one fashion or another. Um, Most of it neutral. Most of it is born out of the fact that you've got really small plots. And to be able to vinify your plots separately, you have to do it in barrel because you can't have enough stainless steel tanks. If you've got 22 different plots of champagne, you can't have 22 small little stainless steel tanks. So the barrels really just help you sort of keep your keep the individuality of your wines and of the vintage separate during fermentation um and it gives you just a little bit longer to play with the flavors before you have to transfer them either into a blend or into a barrel or a, a tank
0: regarding champagne and the cost of champagne it is rising it is getting more expensive um how do you see that affecting the market internationally for champagne
1: i mean gas used to be a nickel price of everything's going up. Um, you know, in champagne, I was talking to a producer that said in the last two years, the cost of his bottles have doubled. Um, the cost of corks have gone up 60%, the cost of labels I mean, everything in the whole world, um, champagne included, the price is going up. So I think, and I was looking at prices, historic prices recently, um, you know, and, and I don't think champagne has gone up as much as everybody thinks it has, but you know, a dollar here, a dollar there really does make a difference. And, um, I think that's the case across the board in wine where the prices are going up. It's harder and harder to find. I remember I used to be able to walk in and get floor stacks of really delicious Provence rosé for eight to 10 bucks. Um, and now they're the, the same bottles are 25, 30, $40. Um, you know, it, it's price sensitivity is something that we always discuss but i think it's not a specific problem to champagne i think it's very noticeable when your bottle of champagne goes up because those numbers are much bigger um but i think i think across the board life is just getting more expensive and unfortunately champagne is part of life
0: it's a situation i've been thinking about because usually the the sales of champagne reflect the success of the economy if the economy is doing well champagne is doing well if the economy is doing badly champagne is doing badly i think people are very quite confused about the economy right now because in the us it's actually doing quite well but it doesn't necessarily feel like that that way because as you mentioned prices are increasing how are champagne sales doing in general right now
1: i think champagne sales are doing very well i think um everyone i speak to champagne is and has been going through sort of a, a big, I don't know what the right word is, but champagne has been growing. Champagne has been getting more and more attention. The price at auctions have gone up, more people are, are, are wanting to drink bottles. The, the quantity of bottles aren't going up, but the people that are drinking it are going up. And so in auction, those prices are going a little bit crazy. And I think that's something that a lot of people point to and saying that, oh, champagne prices are rising. Whereas, you know, since the pandemic, and global shortages and shipping and gas prices and all of these things, the price of champagne hasn't really gone up all that much. Um, I think champagne sales, everyone I'm talking to are saying that you know champagne sales are doing well. Anyone who says that champagne sales aren't doing great, I think, and I had this conversation with a friend the other day, is that we all think about the pandemic. You know, The last couple of years, we were all at home, nobody was working, we were all drinking, and it was a, a nonstop. Nobody knew what day or week or month it was anyway. So you were just drinking. And now I think this is probably the first year where we've had a summer, where people are on vacation, where people are traveling, where um, you know restaurants are slower because people are leaving the big cities to go on a beach vacation or whatever the case may be. So I think people's sales have slowed down a touch. And so there are a few people out there that are saying, oh, champagne sales are slower than than they were. But I I, I really don't see that across the board. I think champagne sales are still growing. Um, I think the demand is still super high. And I think this year when we get to you know the traditional O&D, October, November, December, people start drinking champagne like crazy. I think we're going to see sales... Skyrocket again, and we're going to keep hearing these people on the periphery saying, "Oh, champagne shortage," or this or that. Like, there's plenty of champagne. Trust me. If, if you need some, give me a call. But um, <laughs> there's plenty of champagne out there. But but you know, I think people will start seeing that, and I think there are a lot of wines that will sell out. I mean, you might not be able to go to the grocery store or your favorite retailer and pick out that same bottle you've been drinking all year because demand's going up, sales are going up. Um, and production isn't going up at the same rate. So, you know, it's an exciting time to be selling champagne. It's an exciting time to be drinking champagne. You know, I feel lucky that something I've been passionate about for so long and, and got into business exclusively for myself two or three years ago is sort of going through this revolution of thought, of process, of, of storytelling, of quality, and I'm just writing some really, really cool coattails of producers that are just making really great stuff. And what I get to do is is bring their wines back to the United States and tell stories and share wines and you know, what a what a lucky lucky person I am to be able to do that. I I feel really honored and blessed and you know, my goal every day is just to make the producers happy and tell their stories and share their wines.
0: Telling stories, that's one of the things that I love about wine, there are so many stories—the people, the place, uh, where the wines come from—and that should be expressed in the wine as you uh, share them with other people. So I'm glad that you are you are doing that and importing these really good champagnes into the U.S. and um, hopefully you get more more wines to import as well as we can have more champagne.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, that sounds—that's always the plan, right? We're we're headed back in a few months and. Who knows what we'll bring back? You know, there's always something new to taste. There's always a new producer. Last time we were there, we were at a wine bar and tasted a producer and reached out and said, hey, we've never heard of this. This is delicious. Can we try it? Um, And, you know, we're in the process now of bringing those wines in. So even when I say I'm not looking anymore, there's still some champagnes that just are so good that you can't, can't
0: ignore them. Fantastic. So um, I hope the listeners have got a lot out of uh, this interview about champagne and uh, the different styles and different trends and those producers that um, you just need to try a little harder to look out for, but not that hard because they are available. Uh, So thank you, Garth, for uh, joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully everybody learned something and and more than anything, they're thirsty and they go buy a bottle of champagne and drink it tonight. Mine or someone else's just... Drink some delicious champagne, please.